Any, any, one more, one more. Come on, give me a good one. That was probably the best one so far. Yeah. Anyone? No, no. Okay, I, I found some memes, um, and they're the don't judge me memes. Have you seen some of these? Let me, let me show you some. Um, which I don't get because I'm like that every day. Um, I love my little pony, don't judge me. I, I know some guys who love their little... I just, it's, yeah, I know. Um, don't judge me, it's cheat day. Those of you who are gym fanatics and on a diet, well, for me, every day is a cheat day. Uh, I like this one. Wear pajamas all day, showers at 10 p.m., changes into new pajamas. <laughs> Come on, that's some, who's that? Like, there's some of you. Yeah, that's Christine. Um, I'm going to share my ju- don't judge me meme, and please don't judge me. Like, seriously, this is very, I'm making myself very vulnerable here. Very vulnerable. I'm going to judge, I mean, I'm going to bring three guys with me. <laughs> Don't judge us. That's right, Johnson and Dom. You're there too. And notice where I put the don't judge us. So you're not looking in places you shouldn't. Yeah. Yes, it's forever in your brains. Um, Quiet. Now, those things and the things you shared with each other, uh, look, probably are not too serious. But, you know, there are serious differences, aren't there, that we can all think of, where criticism and judgment and conflict are hurtful and divide us. And some of these happen within the Christian circles, in church, maybe even in this church. Some of these will affect the way we treat each other. Some of these have actually created hurts and maybe these wounds you're still carrying with you to today. Well, we're going to cover really about a chapter and a half of Romans. And the reason why it's, it's a chapter and a half is because there's really one main theme in it. Um, even though it's a lot of ground to cover, I'm going to do it pretty quickly. But there was one hot issue of their day where there was a potential for division and judgment. And we want to see how Paul, the writer of Romans, teaches them through this issue because it'll have a lot to say to us. So let me pray and let's get into it. Father, we pray that as we uh, tackle this part of Scripture where you have so much to say to us through uh, the window of this early church almost 2,000 years ago. We pray that we today at BCC can know how it speaks to us as a church and how it speaks to us as individuals. Holy Spirit, come and speak your powerful word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you've got Zach Page's uh, church app, um, which is free, by the way, so please download it and use it, or um, the paper outlines, you'll see I've got a few points there. Uh, also, we will be looking at the whole one and a half chapters, so keep your Bibles open, and on the Zach Pages app, the whole passage is actually printed out for you, because I'll be referring to that. So firstly, a bit of background. Um, last week, if you were here, uh, Romans, the second half of Romans 13 is what we looked at, and it was a call to love, wasn't it? The kind of love that was selfless, uh, that was without limits, right? We, we owe each other a debt of love that we can never pay off, that's what we looked at last time. And it's because love fulfills all of God's laws. Love your neighbor as yourself fulfills the whole of the law of God. And to love is to live in light of our new identities and our new destinies. That's what I talked about last week. So this week's stuff is actually a continuation. It's just that he's zeroing in on a particular issue that they needed to show love in. That's where we're at. Now, why was this such a hot topic for the church in ancient Rome? Well, this church was actually in danger of being deeply divided. And deeply divided, particularly along Jewish and non-Jewish, or the word is Gentile, lines. 
if you were um, with us a couple of years ago at Acts 11, w- before we started as a church, but if you were with uh, us at Acts 11, when we started the book of Romans, you might know that the, book of Ro- uh, the church in Rome started as a bunch of Jewish converts to Jesus. Right? Probably after the first sermon was preached in Acts and the Holy Spirit was poured out, there were Jews in Jerusalem that went back to Rome and they started a church and then they started preaching the gospel to other Jews, but also to non-Jews. And then Gentiles be- began to come into the church because they were converted to but it was a Jewish and Gentile, probably initially it was more Jews than Gentiles. But then something happened because under Emperor Claudius, he was a bit of a nasty fella. He ejected all of the Jews from Rome. So all Jews had to leave the city of Rome. So including the church in Rome. So imagine now the church, which used to be maybe predominantly Jewish, now became completely Gentile. Now after Claudius died, the Jews began to trickle back in. But now they were a minority, no longer the majority. The majority were non-Jewish Gentile Christians. And so you can imagine that that's going to create some tensions, yeah? Especially because the Jews have been away for a little while. And we see in these, uh, in these passages three things that probably divided them. Well, actually, clearly three things that divided them. There may have been more, but the three things he mentions are, number one, had to do with eating meat. All right? I know, shocking, huh? Eating meat. So if you look at 14 verse 2, 14 verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The second had to do with observing special religious holy days, probably Jewish holy days. So verse 5, 14 verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. So eating meat, observing special days, then last of all, drinking wine. Right? Verse 21, 14, 21. He says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine. Or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So eating meat, holy days, and wine. Likely, it was the Jewish Christians who still held to these taboos and practices, while the Gentile Christians, as you can imagine, thought nothing of them. All right? It's a bit like a few weeks ago when we had the international dinner. It was very important for us to make sure there was halal food. Now, there was halal food because there, was, there were going to be Muslim people, and there were uh, Muslim people who came to the dinner. Um, and as you know, uh, Muslim, uh, Muslim people will not, uh, not just not eat pork and not drink wine. Um, even the meat that they can eat has to be prepared a certain way and has to be halal. Now, you can imagine that a person who's come to know Jesus from an Islamic background all of their life, there may be and there are sometimes still a little bit of you know, funniness about eating pork and drinking wine even after the conversion. Do you see what I mean? Like, it still carries through. Now, how much more so for the Jewish person? Now, Jews, by the way, were not forbidden to eat all kinds of meat or drink wine. But in a place like Rome, they probably abstained. I'll tell you why. It's because meat and wine were often sold in markets that were attached to pagan temples of Roman or Greek gods. And these meat and wine were probably first offered to idols. And so for both the Jew before their conversion... And after their conversion, this was like absolute no-no, right? Why would you eat something that's been offered to a false god? So they probably abstained for that reason. And even if that wasn't the case, they just couldn't be sure that the meat was prepared in a kosher way. Right? It's a bit like halal. Holy days, well, that's part of the Jewish calendar. So just like Muslims have Ramadan, which is fasting uh, periods, and Eid, which is feasting periods, well, the Jews also had fasting and feasting and other holy days too. 
So for Jewish converts, it was likely that they just hadn't quite let go of these taboos and these restrictions and these holy days and festivals. However, it's important to note in these chapters that this wasn't a salvation issue. All right, it was, it was secondary issues. Because when it came to issues that affected a person's salvation, if, if, if people were saying, unless you, you know, unless you observe holy days, you can't be a member of the church or you can't be saved. Or if you eat uh, meat, then you are somehow less to God and you can't be saved. Then that would be a totally different type of issue. That becomes a primary issue. Or if these things were things that actually were clearly sinful, that would be a totally different thing. Because Paul, the writer of Romans, actually in other places, when it is primary issues, has to do with sin or salvation, he's pretty harsh on it. Right? He comes down pretty, pretty black and white about it. Like an example is the book of Galatians, where people were saying, unless you get circumcised, right, you can't really be a full member of the, of, of the body of Christ. He comes down really hard on them. He, he, he writes, I mean, if you read the book of Galatians, he basically says, you know, if anyone should preach something like that, go to hell. All right? So it's not those kind of things. These, um, Paul in verse 1 calls them disputable matters. Do you see that? Disputable matters. In verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Essentially, these things have nothing to do with the core, the essence of belonging to God, of being in the kingdom of God. Right? They are secondary issues. Now, it's important for us to recognize that there are equivalents today, aren't there? I mean, these are they're things that are really not right or wrong. They're not actually related to sin or salvation because the Bible is silent about a whole lot of things, yeah? They're secondary. I'll give you some examples. What do you wear when you come to church? Right? Our brothers and sisters next door at the church that meets before us, they're all in suits and ties, right? This is about as formal as I get. Right? And if you're Dan O'Regan, it's like summer is like sandals and shorts and maybe no shoes. And that's totally okay. Right? But the Bible's silent about that. Just don't wear socks and sandals. Okay, what music, what music you listen to, what movies you watch, how you spend your money, what hobbies you have, whether you can work on Sundays, who you're voting for in the upcoming election. You know what? The Bible does not address them directly. They are, by and large, secondary issues. Now, it's an important thing then, and an important thing now, that we also see this division is not just along Jew and Gentile lines. Because otherwise, you know, like we're all Gentiles, I think. Yes, we are. Then um, it doesn't become any relevant, any, have, have any relevance for us. The division is actually between what Paul calls between the strong and the weak. Did you notice that? He talks about the weak in a number of places. And by, by inference, the strong on the other hand. So you see that in verse 1 except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Okay, so it seems like the strong were okay to eat and drink whatever, the weak weren't. And I'm not talking about how strong your constitution is when you go to Asia. The strong can eat anything, and the weak have a week of diarrhea. Um <laughs> I'm not talking about that, though. You guys who are going to Asia on uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia on mission, just beware. Um, no, he's talking about strong faith versus weak faith. But he's not talking about the kind of faith that saves, right? He's talking about certain kinds of convictions you have and how strong, in light of 
Let me explain it this way. The best way of understanding is this. Those who are strong in faith have worked out that because we are saved by God's grace alone, through Jesus alone, then these old religious taboos and traditions aren't important anymore. What about the weak in faith? Well, the weak in faith, they all believe still absolutely true. We're saved by grace in Jesus alone. But what they haven't yet done is they haven't joined all the dots yet. And so they still feel somehow that Christians should avoid these taboos and observe these holy days. You, you see what I mean? So as a consequence, you can imagine these two groups, the strong and the weak. They were judging and criticizing each other. You can imagine what they're saying to each other, right? They're, they're strong and be saying to the weak, you guys are not living in the freedom that Christ brings. Don't you know that we're saved by grace? Why are you still keeping all these laws? But then the weak are criticizing the strong, saying, you guys are just compromising your faith. Don't you know that you may be eating and drinking stuff that was offered to idols? Yeah? You can imagine the kind of division and dialogue that was going on. Now, again, on food and drink, it's a little bit harder for us to relate to, but we do have equivalents. I mean, let me ask you these questions. If you're a Christian, what do you think of these? Is it okay for Christians to watch Game of Thrones? Play Grand Theft Auto? Smoke? Have a tattoo? Kim's not here. Um, <laughs> is it okay for Christians to vote the Greens? Right? I've, I've seen some Facebook chatter, aggro. Um, is it okay for Christians to vote for the Greens? Is it okay for a Christian to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple if gay marriage should become law? Is it okay for a Christian to attend the wedding of a gay friend if gay marriage should become law? Is it okay for a Christian to legally own a gun? Buy $1 milk because you're not supporting farmers. Is it okay for Christians to splurge on unnecessary and very expensive luxury items, cars, or holidays. Is it okay for Christians to play mahjong, do yoga, use real money in a poker game? Now, I mentioned those ones, and if I got a survey of all of those things, I guarantee you we would fall on different sides because I know Christians, all saved by grace, all loving the Lord Jesus, who stand on both sides of each one of those issues but they're all secondary. And it's so easy for us to judge each other, isn't it? To see it on Facebook. Oh, the political ones at the moment. So crazy, right? What kind of lines you draw on who you should and shouldn't vote for as Christians. So what's the solution? Well, let me give you a quick structure of how this chapter and a half work, because we can't look at it in detail, obviously. But essentially, it's a sandwich, okay? Because we're talking about food and drink, so it's a sandwich. Um, the beginning and the end of 14 and 15, or the middle of 15 is where we're stopping, but the beginning and end of our passage, Paul is going to talk to both groups, both the strong and the weak. And that's my point too. We'll look at them first, the bread. And then the middle, the meat or the salad, depending on whether, anyway, um, of the sandwich, um, there's a special focus on just talking to the strong. And that's my third point, okay? So that's where we're going. So that point number two, he's talking to both the strong and the weak. Let me just give you the summary of the arguments because we don't have time to look at it all. But the first thing he says to both groups is, look, don't judge, because Jesus is Lord. We're going to read a few verses. So 14, 14 verse 3, I'll pick it up there. 14, 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. 
And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Skip down to 13. 13. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You know what he's saying there? Ultimately, we all perform to an audience of just one. God. He's our Lord. He's our master. Right? We're all ultimately just accountable to Him. We're His servants. So when it comes to each other, his point is, don't try and be each other's Jesus. Stop playing God. My kids, at this age, probably is going to continue for a long time. They love policing each other. You know, anytime mom and dad say X, they're really good at reminding each other of what that is. But they do it in such a way as to say, essentially, you know, that they're acting like mom and dad. And it's really annoying because they're not mom and dad. And they only do it ever when it suits them, right? When they're the ones in the wrong, it's like suddenly they forgot what mom and dad actually said. But they're really good at policing each other and playing mom and dad. And we have to tell our kids sometimes, look, this is mom and dad's job, right? You don't police. You know, one of the biggest taboos in parenting is this. And those of you who are new parents will know it's, it's hard enough, okay? Being a parent, just figuring out what to do. But you know what's really, really a big taboo and very annoying if it happens? Is when someone else parents your child. Has that ever happened to you? You know, your, your child is eating with their hands and they're like, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do that, Right? <laughs> Or you can't eat that. Or your child is so fat. <laughs> this is big bone, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the worst thing, right? Because they're not their parent, right? I like to feed my kids lots of food. Because they're big bone. Okay? Let me be the parent of my own children. It's a similar argument here. Let God be the Lord of me and you and stop trying to play God. Now, let me just kind of widen this a little bit because you think about any time you're judgmental, right? Anytime you, you, you have a judgmental thought or a critical thought of, of a person, doesn't it almost always come from a sense of superiority? You're better. Or a desire for control. Like, I, I can't stand the way you're doing that. If I was you, I wouldn't do it like that. Or I don't like the way you're doing that because it doesn't fit into my the way I, you know, we should do it. And so you want to control them. Or at least this attitude that somehow they need to answer to me. Yeah? But in other words, how much, when I judge, am I just wanting to play God over others? Okay, I'm not talking about, by the way, good and loving accountability. In the church, in community life, on issues of right versus wrong of wise versus foolish living. We are to invite each other to be accountable to each other. And we're not talking about that. That's important, but this is not what we're talking about. Here, remember, we're talking about secondary issues. 
These are issues that to do with different convictions about certain things. And by extension, other things that we tend to judge each other on, like habits, right? personality types, even work ethic, dress, cleanliness, punctuality. All right? <laughs> Ask yourself this question. When you feel those very strong feelings of judgmentalism and the criticism, kind of just just boiling up against someone, you generally don't say anything. You might talk about them behind their back, but you really can't stand the way that they do X or Y or R, X or Y. And this is an issue that you may think is important, but it, you know, if you look through the Bible, you will not find the Bible address it because they actually are secondary. Isn't, it, isn't a lot of it, at least, coming from a desire to play God? Now, you see it most in close relationships, um, marriage, Karen and I have been married 16 years. For the first 10 years, we just tried to change each other. The last six years, we just realized, hey, you know what? It's better when we don't try to change each other because God has made us different. So now we're happy. Um, <laughs> we were happy in the first 10 years too. Um, now, now the issue is with my kids, right? I keep trying to make my kids exactly like me and I just get this control freak thing going on. And then I, in my sane moments, I'm like, I don't want them to become like me because that's scary. And you would agree, right? But you no, know, other relationships, good friendships, you'll see this happening a lot. Close working relationships, if you're in like community group together, you know, serving in different ministries, this happens, okay? We judge each other and we want to play God over each other. We want them to be accountable to me. But they're not, they're accountable to God. So that's the first thing he says to both the strong and the weak. Stop judging each other. The second thing he, sa- thing he says, and now we're in the other side of the sandwich, um, chapter 15, 7 to 13, is accept those whom God accepts, okay? And the reason is because God, through Jesus, God has actually accepted all kinds of people without discrimination, and particularly Jews and Gentiles. So you see verse 7, let's read there. 15 verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on, might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. The whole of Romans keeps coming back to this Jew and Gentile. God has brought two of them together through Jesus. Now God says, accept, because that's what He's done. And you know that accept is different to tolerate, yeah? No, no, it's, it, God doesn't just tolerate us Gentiles. He accepts and welcomes us. So applying this, it's not just that we're not to judge and criticize each other, but then we'll kind of stay out of each other's way and, you know, do this sort of, yes, polite, but really don't want to get into a relationship, don't really want to be... F- no, no, it means loving It means welcoming, it means accepting, it means receiving, it means befriending, it means moving towards. Because that's what God does. He accepts. Now, is that hard? You bet it's hard. Right? But he says this both to the strong and the weak. Don't judge, accept. But then what he does next, and I'm to point three now, he's going to talk just to one group, just the strong. Now, here you need to know that Paul actually sides with the strong in terms of what he thinks about clean and unclean foods and all that he sides with the strong so you see it in 14 verse 14 
chapter 14, verse 14, he says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. When it comes to meat, wine, holy days, Paul is with the strong. Now, what does Paul do at this point? He does what I usually don't do, right? What I tend to do, and maybe you're like me, is when you know something, especially in the realm of Bible and theology and you know better and all that kind of stuff, we tend to make the strongest case we can to try and convince the other side why we're right and they're wrong. You see it on Facebook all the time. So Paul could have here said, I'm, I'm with the strong guys. I know this is where we stand. I'm going to show how weak the weak position is. And by the way, Paul had all the authority. He's an apostle. He writes the Bible. He has all the knowledge to do that. But he doesn't. He doesn't ever turn to the weak and tell them what they must do. He only turns to the strong. He puts the onus on the strong to accommodate and care for the weak. Why does he do that? It's because it's a gospel principle. The gospel is all about caring for the minority. The majority caring for the minority. The strong caring for the struggling. And the weak. The gospel is all about laying aside your rights. For the sake of others, like Jesus does. And so that's why he addresses the strong. And this is a really big lesson to us, isn't it? But he says these um, two things to the strong. So here we are in the meat of the sandwich. Chapter 14, 13 to 23, he says, don't pressure them, but instead pursue peace. So you look at 14 verse 13. I'm going to pick up there. 14 verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Right. He's saying, don't do something that's going to distress them. Now, what does he mean by distress? Is it just that they see you doing it and they feel funny about it? No, no, I think he's talking about something else, something a little bit further than that. He's talking about peer pressure. He's talking about that when they see you do it and you who know that this isn't wrong to do it and you pressure them and say, oh, come on, you can do it. It doesn't really matter. And then they, because of your pressure, do it too, but they're doing it against their conscience. That's distressing. And that, Paul says, would be causing them to sin. Now, eating meat and drinking wine is not a sin in itself. But look what he's saying. If you, by your pressure, cause them to act against their conscience, then it then becomes sin for them. And you've just led them into sin. That's the stumbling block. And that's why he says in verse 23, did you notice that when we read it out? Anything that does not come from faith is sin. That's what he means. Right? If you're acting contrary against your convictions, your conscience, your faith, then for you, on that issue, it becomes sin. I want to show you that there's the same logic applied in another passage in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, Paul is not dealing with exactly the same situation. There is not so much a Jew or Gentile division because um, there was probably mostly a Gentile church. But it had to do with, again, a strong and a weak thing, and specifically about whether Christians and believers should eat meats that have been sacrificed to idols. So it's some overlap, but not completely the same. But the principles are there. So let's have a look at, I've printed it, I've got it on, on the overhead for you. Have a look there. He says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know 
that an idol is nothing in all in the world and that there is no God but one. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols and when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Okay, you see what it's saying? It's because they, following you, go against their conscience. That's the key. So we're talking about this. Interesting, I preached this this morning and some... And it's really important to know that you can't over-apply this passage because especially the day of social media, almost anything you put on Facebook will offend someone in some way. And so you're not to think, well, I can't put up pictures of my holiday because someone else who thinks that Christians should never holiday will feel offended. No, it's not about that. This is about when what you do in your stronger knowledge or your Christian freedom actually causes someone else to do the same and act against their conscience. Okay, let's be a bit more specific about how this is applied. But it's actually really important for us to understand why conscience is important. Because he, he makes a big deal out of it. So let me go on a very short but important little tangent and explain the Bible's view of conscience. In the Bible, the conscience is not equivalent to, does not equal the Holy Spirit's voice or God's law. And how I know this is because all people have consciences, not just Christians. If you're made in the image of God, you have a conscience. And in fact, if you go into a little bit more detail, the conscience in the Bible seems to be more of a warning sign rather than, so, you know, Jiminy Cricket on Pinocchio, if you know, you know or, or the kind of, um, uh, sometimes people think the conscience will tell me what's right as well as what's wrong. You know, the conscience doesn't seem to have that function in the Bible. It more is just about telling you and alerting you to when you are doing something wrong. So in a sense, it doesn't tell you what's right, but indirectly, do you know what I mean? All right. So the conscience is more as a warning signal to when you're going against it. It's a warning signal to say, uh, 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 that warning, right? Don't do that. But here's the important thing. The conscience in the Bible is not absolute in that it can be shaped by human, social, other kind of factors and standards. I mean, you see it here. The conscience is weak, right? So someone's feeling bad about eating meats, even though... By God's standard, they shouldn't feel bad about eating meat. So you see, at their point, the conscience has been influenced by something that actually doesn't come from God. Do you, do you see what I mean? And so much so that the Bible says, in one, uh, if you want to reference 1 Timothy 4.2, don't want to look it up, but it's 1 Timothy 4.2, that your conscience can be seared. Right? You can so ignore your conscience so frequently that it's almost like it stops functioning. Or your conscience can be corrupted, says Titus 1.15, Titus 1.15. Because it can be so shaped by a world that's corrupt, that it gets corrupted. See, your conscience is not absolute. Um, most people who uh, are not Christians and don't share the Christian view of sexuality, you know what, most of my non-Christian friends, if they're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage, they don't feel bad about it. There's no pangs of conscience. And in a sense, I'm not surprised. And why should they feel pangs of conscience? Because our whole world as society says nothing bad about it. Do you see, your conscience can be shaped by society. So at this point, you might be thinking, well, if the conscience is not God's voice or the Holy Spirit or God's law, why is it so important? Why does Paul make such efforts to say, don't act against it? Well, it's because your conscience, and especially for the Christian, is your first line of defense. So lately, I don't know if you've been you know, hearing, the popular thing is talking about how important your gut bacteria is, right? 
Apparently, bacteria in your intestines is really, really important. You should make sure you have enough of the good stuff. They even do poo transplants. Did you know this? Anyway, too much information. Um, oh, yeah. So um, your gut bacteria gives you uh, a really good immunity, um, helps your metabolism, your general health and well-being. Right? Your gut bacteria is, in a sense, your first line of defense. And so when, when, when um, pathogens come or you know, sickness comes, it's not as if, if you, don't, if you have a depleted gut bacteria, there's other lines of defense, right? But the, your first line of defense is important. So those who have got good gut, gut bacteria presumably will get sick less. And so don't mess with your gut bacteria. Or you might need a poo transplant. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's a little bit like the conscience, okay? Paul is saying, you're, not the poo transplant, the conscience. Um, the conscience is your first line of defense. Now, for the Christian... Your conscience begins, the moment you become a Christian, it begins to be shaped by God's laws. It used to be shaped by human standards and society, but God begins to work on the conscience. His voice begins to shape your conscience, and, and your, your desires change, and so your conscience um, changes. And the Holy, so it's not equivalent to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit uses the conscience. And so for the Christian especially, it's a really important first line of defense. And Paul is saying, do not compromise that first line of defense even if it's related to secondary or disputable matters. Because if you act against your conscience on these disputable matters and you ignore it and weaken it, then what happens when it needs to be strong for non-disputable matters? Like you deplete your gut bacteria when you're healthy, it's going to be really bad for you when you get sick. Do you see the point? Don't on purpose deplete it. And especially don't do it for someone else or to someone else. And that's why Paul is saying to the strong, do not pressure the weak to act against their conscience because it's unloving. It will hurt them in the long run. Now, it doesn't mean that over time they can't mature, they can't grow stronger in their faith. It doesn't mean that over time their conscience may not be won't be changed by the Holy Spirit. Those things are all true. But don't pressure them to act against their conscience because it'll hurt them. All right, so that's the first thing he says to the strong. The next thing, the much quicker one is, please others for the sake of unity. And we're back in chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. Let me just read a couple of verses there. He says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up, like we saw last time. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the ultimate example is obviously Jesus. But you know what? Paul is also a great example of this. And so the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, he says this, and it's worth just seeing these familiar verses again. You probably know it. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You see what he's saying? He's the strong but he's willing to lay aside his right to be strong, to act, to do what the weak do in order to please them. And ultimately, in order to please God and share in the blessings that God has in the gospel. And we get a beautiful picture of this blessing back in our passage in Romans, because this is the goal. This is why you do it. Chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that, verse 6, with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The goal is unity, united praise. It's the worst thing if you're singing together at church and there are deep divisions. It's just an act of hypocrisy, isn't it? The most beautiful picture is united praise for those who were once divided, for those who are different. And for Paul, that unity is worth it. It's worth laying down all his rights for. It's worth every sacrifice for. And the question for us, though, is, is it worth it for us? I mean, that's the biggest challenge, isn't it? How much do you and I care about church unity? Really, how much do we care about it? Chapter 14, verse 19, he says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. When The last time you had a conflict with a Christian brother or sister, did you make every effort? I don't. I didn't. 99% of the time, I didn't make every effort. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Do you make every effort? What is unity worth to you? Yeah? I mean, is unity worth you laying down your rights for someone else? And in that conflict situation, maybe even that argument on Facebook, is it worth you not having the final word? Not being right all the time. Is it worth you being misunderstood? Is it worth you taking criticism and not retaliating? Is unity worth you swallowing your pride and moving towards the person first? Apologizing for what you can apologize for first, even though they haven't. Is it worth that extra mile that you might take to accept someone who actually is deeply annoying to you? Or actually forgiving someone who's hurt you. And it doesn't look like they're moving towards you. But you're willing to reconcile and forgive. Is it worth it? Is unity for some worth you stop standing on the sidelines of church? Actually getting to know the people at church. Getting involved in what is, yes, messy. What is a sin-riddled community? Because that's what church is. Hospital for sinners. You know, it's easier to stand on the edges. You come, be polite, go, not really make relationships. No. Is unity worth you getting into the thick of it? Even though it will inconvenience you and it will probably hurt you. And do you know why I don't think it's worth as much as it should to me on my worst days? Simply because it didn't cost me like it cost Jesus. Do you notice what Paul says in verse 15, 14, 15? Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Our speaker in the first mission talk in two weeks time, Steve Chong, he spoke really powerfully at a youth rally last year. And the question that a lot of youth are still talking about is the question he asked, or he, uh, the statement he made. He says, you know how much you're worth by how much someone is willing to sacrifice for you. Now, you know how much you're worth by how much someone is willing to sacrifice for you. Now, that is certainly true for individuals. All of us, Jesus sacrifices life to save you. That's how much you're worth to Him. But you know what? It's even more true of His church, His body. Because the picture you get in the New Testament is often not just about individuals. It's about how Jesus died 
to redeem a people, a body, Jew and Gentile, together. He died to bring that kind of unity. That's how much it cost him. It didn't cost me that much, and maybe that's why I treat it so lightly. So this section of Romans does challenge us, doesn't it, to apply in two ways. The first way is more narrowly to those secondary matters of conscience. But more broadly, I think it just any, any way that we relate to each other in community life. Remember, our Lord paid for our unity with His life. So next time I'm tempted to fight and divide and criticize and not apologize, not forgive. The next time I, I'm tempted to gossip and talk about someone else behind their back. I'm to think, am I cheapening his death? Am I treating as nothing the infinite price my Lord paid for our unity? Let's pray. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.